Well, hello, kids, and welcome to episode number two of the Eager Beaver podcast, a podcast providing incisive commentary on Canadian politics and general culture. Today, recording day, is Saturday, May 1st, 2021, and after a few days of April showers, it has been a rather crisp, though bright day here at the Beaver Lodge, and that's okay, because the ground around the lodge needed a good drink. I'm your host, the Eager Beaver, and I'm utterly delighted that you, my dearest kits, are here. Whether you are a new listener or were into us before we went audio, all are welcome. Of course, a big thank you goes to our podcast's founding sponsors, The Peppermaster, The Miss V Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, and CanadianTarot.com, who have all agreed to remain with us following our debut because it's always nice to have people who believe in you. On today's episode, in the news, an update on important news you can use about COVID vaccines, we touch upon the Quebec Superior Court decision on Bill 21, we have good news for those frustrated by Air Canada, we'll gloat over some news bound to make Premier Jason Kenney and several of his UCP Alberta cohorts cry, and we'll discuss an MP's near tip slip that someone let slip out. We'll also address the triple guilty verdict in the Officer Lynch mob trial. And we are super excited to have scored our very first guest interview. I won't say who it is right now, but if you enjoy sports and curling in particular, you're going to love this. We just couldn't believe our luck when this person took all of 0.7 seconds to agree, and I've been giddy about it ever since. A total sweetheart this guest is. It's gonna be fun. All I will say is, we done good. And we'll finish the show with a few, oh, shall we say, curious and lighter bits of news. So kids, fasten your seatbelts, because here we go! So before we go any further, it's time to welcome my co-host and all-around editing genius, Mr. Grizzly. Hey, Hello, how you Mr. doing? Grizzly. Hey, how are you? I jumped in I'm a little good. early there. I apologize. <laughs> that's all right. I'm the one that's supposed to be eager. <laughs> how are your spirits today? Um, actually, pretty great. Uh, went for a 10K walk with a lovely friend. Uh, we were down by the Rideau Canal and... Yeah, it was nice and uh, stopped to uh, walk by a friend's porch and had a little chat with them for a few minutes, came home, had some nice dinner. Yeah, feeling good. A little tired. You know, 10K walk is, you know, it's a lot, but yeah, no, I'm feeling good. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing pretty good too. Yesterday was a little rougher. I was a little, just in general, bored. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, you know, even though I've got plenty to do, it was just more, uh, yesterday was just one of those days that felt just like the same as any other. <laughs> so, but today is much better <laughs> um and i overall i'm doing much better because uh, as you well know because you were at the mixing board at the time i had i'll say um a little moment uh, on monday <laughs> yeah yeah uh, uh it's um yeah that news uh the news of the death of emma emily uh Viegas really uh, got to me it was uh just too much. Well, I don't know how you could not be affected by that. How could anybody not be affected by that, right? It's just, uh, it's an absolute avoidable tragedy. Tragedy. Thoroughly. Yeah. I, I agree. So shall we get to the news then? I believe we shall. All right, let's do this. And we start with the COVID roundup. Pandemic-wise, life seems good on PEI in Yukon and Newfoundland and Labrador. There are small outbreaks in the Northwest Territories, Nunavut and New Brunswick, as well as a larger one in Nova Scotia. But so far, nothing it seems a hard and quick circuit breaker lockdown should not be able to contain. And recently minted Liberal Nova Scotia Premier Ian Rankin appears to not be afraid to do just that. The various lockdowns in Canada's three most populous provinces appear to be helping Canada reduce its rolling seven-day case total from just over 60,000 three days ago to just under 56,000 two days ago. However, 
In Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, the rolling seven days case total is either steady or still rising. In addition to sending help to Ontario, Prime Minister Trudeau will be sending 60 members of the armed forces to Nova Scotia to shore up testing. He has also proactively reached out to the government of Alberta to offer help, but it appears Premier Kennedy feels he still has the luxury of rebuffing it. About one-third of Canadians, about 13 million, have received their first jab of COVID vaccine. Over 1 million Canadians, that's about 2% of the population, are fully vaccinated. A reminder that one is considered fully vaccinated 14 days after the final recommended dose of whichever vaccine was administered to you. And speaking of vaccines, there is important news you can use. According to CNBC, a preliminary report from the largest study on COVID vaccine safety in pregnant women was published on April 21st in the New England Journal of Medicine. The study shows that Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccines are safe to use during pregnancy. Researchers found no obvious safety signals in any of the 35,691 people followed. Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, now recommends that the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine may be offered to individuals 30 years of age and older without contraindications. If the individual does not wish to wait for an MNRA vaccine and the benefits outweigh the risk. End quote. A 54-year-old woman from Quebec is Canada's first casualty resulting from the rare but serious clotting-related condition being referred to as vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VITT. Five previous cases of VIT had been reported in Canada and were able to be treated in time. It is important to note that this condition, while treatable, can be particularly tricky because, if I understand this correctly, and if I don't, please listeners with expert knowledge send in a correction, but this condition can be particularly tricky because it can cause blood clotting in some parts of the body while simultaneously causing blood thinning in other areas. This means that administration of a typical clotting or anti-clotting agent could do damage, as what may be required is an immunoglobulin. The odd of this occurring are estimated at 1 in 100,000, but if the situation arises for you or for someone for whom you care, ensuring a hematologist is a member of your treatment team is critical. Signs of VIT usually surface between 4 to 20 days after the first shot. Symptoms are chest pain, leg swelling, feeling confused and unwell, or just generally unwell, abdominal pain, easy bruising or bleeding, and or very severe headaches. Please be sure to take good care of yourselves. The Quebec Superior Court delivered its ruling on Bill 21, the law that denies access to certain government employment to citizens who wish to wear religious symbols on the job. According to CBC, the court, quote, has struck down some sections of the province's secularism law, but also ruled its most controversial provisions are constitutional. In a ruling handed down Tuesday morning, Justice Marc-André Blanchard said the Quebec government has the right to restrict what religious symbols are worn by government employees, such as teachers, police officers, and prosecutors. But he also said the law can't be applied to English schools because it violates minority language education rights protected under Section 23 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And he said that members of the National Assembly can't be forced to provide services to the public with their faces uncovered. End quote. This is a very curious ruling, as its application seems to lead to a basis for a second challenge. If it's okay to discriminate on the basis of religion in French language schools, but not in English language schools in Quebec to protect minority language rights, would that not create a legally untenable situation in which the linguistic minority would have a greater access to government employment as equally competent citizens of the linguistic majority? I can't imagine that this will go over well at all when the realization hits. This one has appeal written all over it. I have to agree, Mr. Grizzly. This does not sound good at all. No. It's, um, I still can't believe that nobody has yet made the taxation argument on Bill 21, because it demands that the citizens that are most adversely affected by the bill must accept that they get less access to government employment as everybody else, while the government that imposed it maintains the expectation that they continue to pay the same taxes as everyone else, despite being specifically singled out for special exclusionary treatment. 
the argument's just sitting right there, and I'm surprised that nobody's made it. I mean, it's taxation without representation, which I know is an American concept, but I mean, it still applies. It does apply. It does apply. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Uh, a charter challenge, a, a superior court challenge. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of problems with that one. Um, and, and I mean, they, they have the current law. Like, you cannot go out in public or go into any sort of establishment of any type in the province of Quebec right now without wearing a mask. So doesn't one law strike down the other? (laughs) (laughs) I guess it depends on whether or not the masks are worth for the face coverings are for public health or because, you know, you're living your authentic life. Uh, It still sticks in my cry that the the inherent hypocrisy that resides in the juxtaposition of legislators forcing teachers, police officers, and prosecutors to remove their symbols while said legislators have excluded themselves from their own law. This is how you know that not only only do they know that this is wrong, but that they're more than willing to impose on citizens that which they would not impose on themselves. And that, kits to me, is a very frightening thought. Indeed. When announcing a $1.16 billion fourth quarter loss, then Air Canada President and CEO Kaylin Rovanescu called the 2020 year the bleakest year in the history of commercial aviation. Air Canada was enjoying several years of record passenger growth when it sharply declined 73% in 2020. As a result, the company currently has 14,859 active Canadian employees. That's about 23,000 fewer than its pre-COVID total. Earlier this month, Finance Minister Christia Freeland and Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra announced that the Government of Canada would provide Air Canada with a variety of low-interest loans worth up to $5.4 billion. It will also buy $500 million in company stocks. These funds will be extended through the Large Employer Emergency Financing Facility, a program aimed at supporting large Canadian employers who have lost revenue due to COVID-19. As a condition, Air Canada has announced that, quote, Customers who purchase non-refundable fares but did not travel due to COVID-19 since February 2020 will be eligible to receive refunds as of April 13th. End quote. Other terms of the agreement are restoration of flights on nearly all suspended regional routes, capping compensation for company executives at $1 million per year and to suspend share buybacks and the payment of dividends to shareholders during the loan period, maintaining its workforce at current levels, and respecting collective bargaining agreements and protection of workers' pensions. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what I really feel about this. To be honest, I mean, there's a part of me that says, okay, if you're going to loan them the money, put severe restrictions on it. This capping compensation for executives at a million per year? No. Uh, no. no. Just no. Um, and suspend all share buybacks until the loan is completely repaid. Every last cent of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, maintain the current workforce levels. But there's another part of me that says, why loan them a red cent? Let them fail. Because they've been buying back their own shares, jacking up their own share prices so they can get executive bonuses for years. Let them fail. Somebody says, what about all those jobs? Yeah, we have programs in place to help those people along until another person comes along to start a new airline. Because you know damn well somebody will come in to fill that place. That's just Mm -hmm. a personal take on it for me. It's, you know. I definitely understand. I understand the frustration. Air Canada has not, uh, at least we can say, hasn't been a very good corporate citizen during this. No. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I do like the fact that uh, that the government did had, had, you know, did buy $500 million in shares because, um, you know, government needs some revenue streams right now. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we're going to be lending corporations money, we should be getting something back out of it. So there should be an investment. It's like the share grows or something of the, the sort when we come to sell it, because there's, there's just lending money and, you know, not getting anything back that, that can't, that can't be the deal. Anymore. Agreed. It's just, yeah. it, you know, kind of makes me sick to my stomach, capped them at a million dollars. How about no, how about just none? How many Canadians do you know that have not worked in over a year because of COVID and have, they've had to rely on CERB and now they're on EI. I know people that have lost businesses and you're saying cap it at a million. No, you get nothing. You get your salary and nothing more. This is yeah. our money. 
It should be helping you and me and everybody else, not some rich guy. Sorry, I get really bent out of shape about this. No, no, I I understand because, you know, you get the sleight of hand where they say, well, all the money that was given to us was spent on that, but that's, you know, money if they didn't receive, they would have to, you know, if it just allows you to take it from one other line item and put it somewhere else, Hmm. you know, it's like, yes, the government technically did not finance it, but you, once you got the money again, are showing that you're not being a good corporate citizen. Precisely. Precisely. Okay. Well, it seems that Aloha Gate came with consequences. The Edmonton Sun, so this has got to hurt, reports that according to Elections Alberta, the Alberta NDP outpaced the United Conservative Party in fundraising by a greater than two to one margin during the first quarter of 2021. The UCP raked in $591,597 to the NDP's $1,186,245. As for the others, the Alberta Party, Wild Rose, Independence Party, and Liberals all raised only between thirty dollars and 50000 whereas the Greens barely got above 5000 The meager haul marks a greater than a uh, 50% fundraising dip for the UCP year over year. As for the NDP... It managed that total thanks to, in part, about 3,000 first-time donors. And it is probably safe to assume that every person motivated enough to donate to a political party for the first time probably is representative of a good many more who have jumped ship. If ever there was a time for the UCP caucus to throw Papa from the train, the combo of terrible personal approval ratings for Premier Bumble's bad polling for the party and being outraised 2-1 to by the NDP should be enough to do the trick. If not, then the party has a political death wish. Our final story is a story about how a story grows. (laughs) It's not uncommon for an MP to change a tire in their office, depending on their schedule, who they are meeting, weather, level of physical activity required for what they're going to do, etc. An oops, I got caught being human moment can happen to anyone. And it did. The Liberal MP Will Amos, representing the riding of Pontiac, had such an incident. Following a jog, he was changing in his office during a meeting in which he was participating online. But his computer camera, unbeknownst to him, was turned on. Whoa, (laughs) cheeky. (laughs) Vive le Québec libre, indeed. Ah, the perils of jogging. (laughs) That was my first reaction. Will Amos totally owned it handling the situation with grace and making no excuses. Let's let Will live Amos live this down, I thought, as I shared the story, which included the picture. And then that which I had simply first thought of as just one of those life moments took a turn. You see, there was both a public and private feed for this meeting, and though the picture did not show any of Mr. Amos's boy bits because a cell phone happened to be strategically well-placed at the time, this image was from the private feed of the meeting. Did Will Amos grant his consent for that image of him to be shared with the public? Quote, It's also illegal to take, share, an intimate photo of someone, including posting it online, without their permission. Will Amos should lodge a complaint with the police against the Canadian media that published the photo. And police should investigate who took it and shared it. End quote. Tweeted Ishat Reza, a workplace law expert. If that image was indeed taken from a closed feed, Amos certainly would have had a reasonable expectation of privacy from those in attendance or those supporting the meeting. Liberal MP for Milton, Adam Vancouverden, nailed it with a succinct tweet. Quote, I've changed in my office after a run before. I've also left my camera on without realizing it. Never at the same time. That just makes me lucky. My pal Will made an honest mistake, but sharing a leaked nude photo of someone without consent... That's a choice, and an unethical one. End quote. Whether there will be consequence for this choice becomes the question. All of a sudden, this could be a big deal, kids. Now, full transparency, we here at the True North Eager Beaver did originally share the article which included the photo, but once we recognized our error, we immediately removed it and apologized. We do so again now. Amos hoped nobody would comment, but of course, someone had to. And it was Bloc Québécois Party whip Claude de Bellefeuille, MP for salaberry sur who raised it as a point of order. However, in the process, she did take care to not identify the MP involved. 
But as typically happens in such cases, it wasn't long until a screen grab of the moment was going viral once National Post reporter Christopher Nardi tweeted the photo. It spread to the point of becoming one of the Globe's major news and late-night TV stories of the day, despite the fact Nardi eventually deleted the tweet, but without apology or explanation. I'm resolutely not casting myself in a victim posture here. I made a mistake. I'm accountable for not being aware that my camera was on. I have to integrate that into the rest of my life. Stated Amos, who still not pleased the leak had happened. It's corrosive, it's destructive, and it's all because of one or multiple people's decision that this was a good idea to leak it. Amos said. Government House Leader Pablo Rodriguez asked that Common Speaker Anthony Rota investigate the matter. Taking a photo of someone who is changing clothes and in the nude and sharing it without their consent could very well be criminal. Stated Rodriguez. But regardless of the nudity, parliamentary rules prohibit any taking of video or photographs of parliamentary proceedings, including the non-public portions. The call for investigation prompted the Bloc Québécois Sébastien Lemire, MP for Abitibi-Timiskamingue, to admit he took a screenshot of Amos and stated in French, Today, I would like to apologize to the House for breaking the rules by taking a photograph of a colleague during question period on April 14th. Though Lemire apologized to Amos privately, he, to his credit, wanted to make a point of a public apology as well. Lemire claims, however, to have no idea how the image was shared with the media, which opens the door to the possibility he may not be the only one who took a screenshot on that day. In addition, according to Liberal Whip Mark Holland, MP for Ajax, the Bloc and NDP whips reached out immediately to both express sympathy and made compelling cases that this breach of privacy did not happen from within their offices. On Monday, the Speaker of the House deemed the procedural elements of the investigation over, but the Liberals believed the denunciation to be insufficient. According to the Canadian press, they are pushing for a meeting with the All-Party Board of Internal Economy, the governing body of the Commons, to impose sanctions on Lemire, under threat of taking the issue to the police. And that's the news. It's time for us to show some love to the sponsors who love us back, but stay with us, kids. We'll be right back. Hey there, Mr. Grizzly. Hey, Mr. Beaver, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well, how are you? I noticed you don't have a book on your nightstand lately. No, I've been kind of lazy, <laughs> watching oh. TV. <laughs> well, we need to find you something to read, and I've got just the thing. Have you heard of Miss V? Uh, yes, actually. You have told uh, me about her. I have. Miss V Mysteries is an LGBTQ plus cozy mystery series written by Delilah Knight. Miss V is 60, trans, and classy sassy and a bit smart assy. From her kitten heels to her chic bob, Miss V is a lady through and through. When her late aunt's lawyer is found murdered and clutching V's favorite Chanel jacket, she is immediately arrested. Can she find the real killer before the local law puts her away for good? Will she be forced to trade 50s rock and roll for jailhouse blues? Do prisons even have a happy hour? Well, I should hope so. I'm having a Guinness right now. Ooh, I wonder what Miss V drinks. Oh, probably a Cosmos. Ah, good choice. Miss V and the Letters Lawyer is the first book in a humorous, cozy mystery series from by ace author Delilah Knight. On sale now wherever ebooks are sold. Paperback copies are also available, or call your local library and ask them to get it in. Signed copies available at www.corvidmoonpublishing.com. That's www.corvidmoonpublishing.com. The Miss V Mysteries. You need to be reading this. And welcome back. Today, Kits, for the discussion portion of our show, we will touch upon the topic that has been on everybody's minds, on everybody's tongues, the trial of the century, the trial of Officer Lynch Mob. We refer to him that way because we will not say his name on the show. Uh, because this is a meaty topic, how about we just get right into it? Guilty. On all three charges. No bail pending sentencing. In a story that captivated the world, 
the depraved human being to whom we refer as Officer Lynch Mob became the first white law enforcement officer to be found criminally responsible for the death of a black citizen in a case in which death did not involve a shooting. While I felt very confident in my heart that this would be the verdict, given the state of Minnesota had included the third-degree murder charge, and the prosecution only had to prove that the now guilty officer's actions were not the cause of death, but that they played a substantial role in bringing about death. The doubt for me was more about whether he'd be found guilty on all three charges. But as verdict day got closer, I tell you kids, I won't lie. I did wonder if somehow the jury would find a way, because so far, the jury has always found yeah, a way. That's... <laughs> That's uh, that's exactly what I was concerned about. I, I thought, oh God, if they don't convict this man, Minnesota's going to burn. Hell, the whole country's going to burn. Just <laughs> with everything that they had. I mean, if not this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like I said, just the fact that there was the fear, mm-hmm. the fact that there was the doubt. Right, when everybody says, oh, I don't know, there's no systemic racism, there's no proof. The fact that there was the doubt mm-hmm. is the proof that there is systemic racism. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's pretty deep. <sighs> so, while this is a good decision, this is the right decision, it's the righteous decision, the one fear I have is that this case was so painfully obvious and well-documented that it will forever be held up by those who refuse to bring about equality as the token example of the one time accountability did happen. Listen, kids, I don't want to wake up in 2053 hearing conservatives saying, ah, that's not true. Remember that one time back in 2021? And you know damn well that's exactly what would happen. Because they already pull that crap by still claiming to be the party of Lincoln. Yeah, 160 years ago? Come on, (laughs) get off of it. I mean, when you have to dig that far back. Yeah. But when that verdict was read, oh boy. (laughs) I heard all those people saying that comment about, finally, they felt that they could take a breath. Mm -hmm. You know, just that weight on the chest. Anyway, the judge declared Officer Lynch Mob guilty three times. Then... He asked each juror individually whether that was their true verdict. Twelve times he heard yes, confirming his guilt. Then in an altogether now, the judge asked, so say you one, so say you all, to garner one final confirmation. Guilty, 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 guilty. Guilty, 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 guilty. In various ways, Officer Lynch Mob heard his guilt confirmed 16 times in a row. It may not have been 9 minutes and 29 seconds worth of time, Kits, but I'm not gonna lie. It felt good. Mm-hmm. Mm. I completely agree. It did. It felt like justice. A lot of people in the United States, of course, are saying that this is not justice. Of course, if we had justice, George Floyd would still be with us. Yes. But this is at least the beginning of accountability. But call it what you will. Tasted good. <laughs> you are correct. If it was true justice, he never would have been killed over a supposed counterfeit 20 supposed supposed because they can't even find that note yes they lost the key piece of evidence that they killed him for yes and then of course they hadn't even established whether or not he was aware he was using a counterfeit 20 right whether this was deception right yeah Yeah. intent (sighs) but since we are in joy my prayer for the future is this Let this be the start of a brand new era of consequence culture. May that blue wall continue to crumble. And let us acknowledge a, a, not the, but a, a moral of this whole sad story. There are some people who call themselves cops that all good cops should not want on their team. 
If you're a good cop, keep tearing down that blue wall and keep speaking out. Hello, kids. It's Mr. Grizzly, your friendly neighborhood grizzly bear, who is asking you how much you like this program. And I'm asking you if, well, you like this show, you like what you hear, and we're happy to do this for you, if you'd be willing to, you know, throw us a couple of bucks as a tip. And the reason we do this, with the reason we ask this question is because there are some production costs involved. We're happy to give this to you, but, you know, feel free to send us a couple of dollars over uh, coffee.com. And now the website is ko-fi.com backslash eager beaver. Dollar, two dollars, 50 cents, whatever, whatever you can spare. It helps us with our production costs. Mr. Beaver. That's right, Mr. Grizzly. The amount that we have recommended on the coffee site is $3, but it can indeed be anything that you want. Uh, buy Mr. Grizzly a cup of coffee or me a cup of hot chocolate, because after all, you are what you drink. We want you to know that we will be using these tips in part to invest in improving the quality of the show for you. We are looking to get better equipment, better sound, perhaps at a later date, correspondence, a web presence, maybe even filming for YouTube. The possibilities are endless. The show will grow with your support and encouragement, and your support and encouragement is always profoundly appreciated. If you would like to leave us a tip, again, the web address is coffee.com backslash eager beaver. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com backslash eager beaver. Thank you again. And we're back. And Mr. Grizzly, I think our listeners are really going to like this next segment because we've got a really cool first interview guest for them. And in my reality, this guy's a BFD. So should we let them know who it is? Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Let's see if our audience can guess based on these clues. Clue one, our guest trained as a chef and owns his own curling apparel business. Clue two. In 2007, he skipped his team to a Canada Winter Games gold medal and took home bronze in 2017 and 2018 at the Canadian Mixed Doubles Curling Championships with partner Chelsea Carey. Clue three, he made five appearances at the Briar, including the most recent, the first being in 2015, where he won the Ford Hot Shots competition taken home at 2015 Ford F-150. And the final clue, in 2016-2017, he was the lead for the then number two ranked curling team in Canada, Team McEwen, in a season that culminated with a silver at the 2017 Roar of the Rings Olympic Qualification Tournament, which at the time was, in my honest opinion, the highest quality curling tournament in world history, and may still be. No? All right. And recently, and like most importantly, he got engaged to his partner, Brittany, and we here at the Eager Beaver podcast just love, love. So, yes, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't guessed already, our first guest is none other than Canadian curling ace, drumroll please, Colin Hodgson. <laughs> Thanks doing? for having me. <laughs> Thank How you, you very doing? much. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. What an intro. It's always so awkward to listen to other people talk about you. It sounds very, very, doesn't feel like you're talking about me. We'll, we'll say that. <laughs> well, there you well, go. There's a good Canadian kid right there. I'll tell you what. Yeah, there you go. You kind of accomplished a few things, you know? <laughs> Some would say, I guess. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot left to do though. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure you have like bigger, uh, bigger goals and bigger ambitions. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Upwards and higher, as they say. Um, our audience, uh, for those of us who are probably not as familiar with the story for, or with curling, um, how did curling find you? Um, I, my, my earliest curling memory is at the Drayton Valley Curling Club. Uh, my dad took me down to the club. And I remember that I would jump on the handle of the stone and I would put, I'd put both my knees on the one side and holding at the neck. And then my dad would take me 
<laughs> and he would either take his broom on my butt and shove me down the ice. Or nice. if he actually wanted to try to make a shot with me on the rock, he'd, he'd take me and he'd kind of go behind me and he'd spin me to try <laughs> to make me curl towards the button. Um, so I think I, I came by curling pretty honestly at a very young age. I think I was four years old when I started. My nieces and nephews started at three and they're far better right now than I was at their age. So wow. I'm excited to see their progression and it's uh it's a family sport for sure. So you get to the Briar and you uh make a pretty big debut <laughs> winning the hot shots competition. I think Reed was calling line for me and we ended up making like the grossest last two shots ever through like a hack weight eighth of a rock in off to cover the button. And then it was like a quarter rock double sit full button. And then I just snuck into this, into the next round. And then after that, it was like game over. Reed was dialed in with line calling for me. And I did, I barely missed a shot after that. <laughs> it was like, this is wicked. And, and I, I, I got to credit Reed a ton for making good line calls because I, I wasn't that I wasn't in the best shape back then. And you used to have to like you would throw six shots back to back to back to back. So I threw my six and then our second would go throw all six of his. OK, third would go throw all six of his and then our skip would go throw all six of his. Yeah. So that's a lot of because we played all out turns. So I just swept every rock. Back to 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 back. So by the time it was his turn, I couldn't even move my arms anymore. So I stewarded him. He didn't make it because I couldn't get a rock into like four foot where he needed it. So <laughs> thanks, buddy. <laughs> took me about. I just it took a long time to even get him a cake dinner back, if I've even given him that. But <laughs> I've cooked for him many times, so I think that counts. There was a little bit of an Olympic qualification panic for about a day or two or so. Care uh, to inform our, uh, our listeners a little bit about that and what happened as a result? Are we talking about the women's world? I believe so, yes. Okay, so... The women's world, yeah, um, there was two positive tests uh, that came back um, from from the the German women's team, and you know the protocols are are super clear. Like you 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 have to have a negative test in your country before you get on the flight, and that will get you into our country where you get tested again. So one of the six people in that whole delegation tested positive immediately um i believe they went germany to montreal montreal to calgary so we really don't know like it's it's pretty impossible to well it's very difficult to tell um where that would have happened um so then one tested positive on and on their canadian entry one and then the rest tested negative but then the next day on retesting another athlete on the team also tested positive so these aren't the first positives that have happened in the curling bubble so far. We've had some, uh, we had four, um, what they're calling four false positives, which, mm. you know, thus far, um, I don't believe I have enough information of what that really means. We don't know how the false positives happened, but they were on three different teams, which is a little concerning. Okay. Um, but as far as we know, there wasn't more of a spread to other teams within the Grand Slams or um, within the women's worlds or the men's worlds. Um, we had the, the, the false positives were happening during the men's worlds, but yeah. they happen on athletes who were vaccinated in their own country as well. So yeah. there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of um, information that isn't clear yet. Hopefully we get some answers at some point. Um, but yeah, like the crazy thing is, if this happens to a team, and, and it absolutely could be chance, like the the, the German team, I, I know um, Daniele Jensch's team, they're good friends. And I don't know if there's many people on the planet that take curling and their jobs and what they do to qualify for Olympics more seriously. Like they are so driven, determined, mm -hmm. like there's almost nobody else in this entire world. Because I, I make clothing for the German team through, through Dynasty, through my company. Yeah. You know, we work with the Germans. My gosh, they're they're incredibly, um, you know, incredibly on top of everything all the time. So 
for me, it's probably one of the least likely instances where, you know, someone goes out of the norm. I, I don't think that happened for a second. So then, you know, how does this happen? What's going to happen? Are they going to play three-handed? I'm not, you know, we're not sure which players have tested positive yet. It's not public, nor does it necessarily need to be, mm-hmm. but it will be because if the team goes out there three-handed to try to play, we're going to realize who's not there on the yes. bench. And we'd like to thank Colin Hodgson for uh, sharing his time with us. In fact, he was so generous that he gave us enough material uh, for an extended interview. So later in the week, uh, we'll post it in two parts. Uh, And in this interview, you'll be able to hear more about how he came into curling, uh, how he found a team, and uh, a very very deep discussion uh, about mental health and uh, how the bubble uh, was difficult and his decision to pull out of some competition. So we'll have that for you later this week. We hope that you'll enjoy it. And thank you again, Colin, forever a friend of the pod. Hey, Cubs and Kits. It's Mr. Grizzly reminding you that you need to continue to wash your hands, wear your mask, and stay at least two hockey sticks apart. We're all in this storm together. I know we're not all in the same boat. Some people are floating on a beautiful yacht. Some of us are in a rubber dinghy. Others are holding on to a piece of driftwood. But we are all in the same storm. So please, wear your mask, wash your hands, stay within your bubble, and stay apart so we can get together again real soon. Take care. And we're back. Regularly, we like to take a quick look at stories that didn't make us go, We gather stories about cool or quirky things, about moments of finger-licking-good karma, good things happening to good people, and yes, that includes good things that happen to you, dear readers and listeners, or Canadians having done something to make us proud. And we present them to you in a segment we like to call, Okay, Now This Is Just Cool. Following the 2018 calving season, when scientists became alarmed upon noting zero North Atlantic right whale births for the first time in three decades, survey teams are happily reporting having spotted 17 newborn right whale calves swimming with their mothers offshore between Florida and North Carolina from December through March. Scientists suspect the calving slump was caused by a shortage of zooplankton to feed right whales in the Gulf of Maine and the Bay of Fundy off of Nova Scotia. And that is possible that this year's right whale baby boom could be a result of the whales moving to waters with more abundant food sources. Right whale experts consider this season's offspring total as fairly average, considering a record 39 births were confirmed in 2009. The North Atlantic right whale's population is estimated to have dwindled to about 360. According to Clay George, a wildlife biologist who oversees right whales for the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, what we are seeing is what we hope will be the beginning of an upward climb in calving that's going to continue for the next few years. They need to be producing about two dozen calves per year for the population to stabilize and continue to grow again. Yukon Territory held an election and it was as close as it gets. Both the incumbent Liberal Party and the Yukon Party snagged eight seats, with the NDP holding the balance of power with two. One seat for the Vontut Gwitchin riding, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, was contested between candidates Pauline Frost and Annie Blake of the two leading parties, as it ended up in a tie at 78 votes each with no rejected ballots, and a first official recount solved nothing. The Yukon Elections Act requires a judicial recount, which was held in Whitehorse to be completed on April 19th at the latest. As the judicial recount returned the same results, the decision moved on to drawing lots. According to Yukon News, under the supervision of Supreme Justice Suzanne Duncan, two ballots, one belonging to each of the candidates, were placed in a box. As the Liberal candidate Pauline Frost and the NDP candidate Annie Blake looked on, Returning officer Renee Charlie pulled the NDP candidate's ballot. Current Liberal Premier Sandy Silver loses his majority, but will now have first crack at making a deal with the NDP to retain power. A Canadian woman has set the Guinness World Record for the lowest female vocal note. 
Joy Chapman of Surrey, British Columbia, recorded a C1, the lowest C note, on a piano on April 1st. It was Chapman's niece who stumbled upon the fact the previous record was a D2, the second lowest D note on a piano, and convinced her to go for it. It's a relief, because it's just been a long year in trying to get it done, and very nerve-wracking. I wanted to leave something behind because I could do it, said Chapman. To hear Chapman hit the note, check out her interview with guest host Margaret Gallagher on CBC's On the Coast. The awards keep coming for Schitt's Creek. It started with a record nine Emmy Awards, including a clean sweep of the acting categories, ACTRA and SAG Awards for the ensemble, five acting trophies this season alone for the legendary Catherine O'Hara, including the Emmy, Screen Actors Guild, and Golden Globe, and now 15 Canadian Screen Award nominations, all of them really, really well-earned. Now, if only the world can discover Kim's convenience, so it too can get some love. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on that one. And what with Simu Liu about to become a big star? Yes, and, and it's the final season of Kim's Convenience, too. I know, there should be more. There I really should more. be. I want more, I can't get enough Kim bits. Ah, tell me about it. Well, I love Jean Yoon, too. She's just so wonderful. She's wonderful. I love her to bits. I'm hoping that we can get her for an interview one day. That would be wonderful. Hey, you know what? I talk to her from time to time. I'll send so her a message. <laughs> let's let's get her on here. Okay. All right. Uh, maybe we should get back to some news, eh? Yes. File under Canadian girls kick ass. Canada's women's tennis team of Leila Fernandez, Rebecca Marino, Carol Zhao, and Sharon Fishman defeated Serbia at home three times in a row in their first three matches at the Billie Jean King Cup to decisively take the best of five series. By winning, Team Canada advances to the qualification round for next year's Cup. Earlier this past year, it was defeated 3-1 by Switzerland. This was a particularly special victory for Canada because Bianca Andrescu had to pull out after suffering an ankle injury in uh, Miami just a few days before. So Rebecca Marino, who's on the comeback trail uh, after having quit tennis for about five or six years, uh, and she was ranked 38th in the world at the oh, time. Wow. Yeah, uh, is on the way back, and uh, I think she's ranked about 238th right now, and she uh, earned her first uh, win uh, against someone in the top 100 since coming back. So uh, she's on. A, she's climbing. Well, that's spectacular. Yeah, the team did really well. And in our one bit of international news, if you are a big fan of consequence culture, and there being consequences for sedition, the first domino has fallen. According to CNN, 100 days after the January 6th attack, John Ryan Schaefer, a pro-thankfully now merely Florida man insurrectionist, said to be, quote, a founding lifetime member of the paramilitary domestic terrorism outfit known as the Oath Keepers, though his lawyers previously lied in court that he didn't know much about them, quote, pled guilty to obstruction of an official proceeding and entering a building with a dangerous weapon. He admitted to carrying bear spray into the Capitol complex during the formal certification of the election electoral college votes, end quote, making him the first to fold and flip. As part of the deal, Schaefer was obligated to admit that, quote, his belief that the Electoral College results were fraudulent is not a legal justification, end quote, for storming the Capitol complex. According to the article, prosecutors and Schaefer's attorneys agreed to recommend that he get between three and a half and four and a half years in prison based on how fruitful his cooperation is with the government. Schaefer was initially charged with six federal crimes. He was ordered to stay in jail while his case moved through the court system because a magistrate judge was alarmed by his potential ties to Oath Keepers extremists and by the fact he brought bear spray inside the Capitol. Well, if it isn't consequences for one's actions. First Amendment, right? <laughs> Choices. Uh, no, this is very important because, like I said, it might be the first domino. And, you know, if people are flipping, they usually don't flip down. They flip up. Yes. And uh, with Roger Stone in particular, having a very close ties to the Oath Keepers mm -hmm. and uh, the pardon did not cover the stuff that happened on January 6th. No. So uh, he's in trouble. Good. Send him up. Put him away. 
He's a terrible individual. <sighs> and that's the cool news. Well, kids, that's the end of this episode of the Eager Beaver podcast. We hope you had as good a time listening to us as we had putting this together for you because we had a ball. We welcome feedback in the form of compliments, bribes to be on the show, constructive criticism, gentle corrections if we got anything factually incorrect, happy stories of things that have happened to you or your dear one, and in participation in our listeners challenge, we want to see your spring has sprung pictures. You can do all of that on our Facebook blog page, The True North Eager Beaver, or at True Eager on Twitter. And if you really like this podcast, you can find us on Google, Spotify, Apple, and Mixcloud. And tell your friends. And finally, if you really, really, really like this podcast and wish to encourage us to do more, we work for tips. Please feel free to buy a cup of coffee for Mr. Grizzly here or a mug of hot chocolate for me via our coffee page at ko-fi.com backslash eagerbeaver. That's ko-fi.com backslash eagerbeaver. From the Beaver Lodge, this is your Eager Beaver saying, until next time, dear kids, it can be a tough world out there, so be kind to and gentle with yourselves. The True North Eager Beaver podcast is an Eager Beaver Mr. Grizzly collaboration. Copywritten by The Eager Beaver. Recording, production, editing by Mr. Grizzly. Music courtesy of Ben Sound Royalty Free Music. Once again, thank you to our founding sponsors, The Peppermaster, The Miss V Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, and CanadianTarot.com. And thank you to the amazing and wonderful Colin Hodgson for agreeing to be our first guest and now forever friend of the pot. Be sure to look for the extended in-depth version of the interview later this week. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.